That was Kylie Minogue's Mega Smash from 2001, Can't Get You Out of My Head, and it just so happens to have been produced and co-written by today's guest, Rob Davis. Hi, my name is James Rodriguez Horton, the host of The Original Doll. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who created it. We go behind the scenes and learn about all these great songs and the evolutions and the journey songs take. At the same time, we give back to charity. So for every question a guest answers, we get items donated to help out those in need. And on Apple Podcasts, for every episode with that gets released within the first 24 hours, every listen we get on that episode, we get items donated to charity. So just you listening on Apple Podcasts and just the guest answering questions, they're able to help out the communities in need. And we've been able to help out women in domestic abuse shelters, homeless LGBT plus teens, low income families, and more. For more information, find me on Instagram, the.original.doll, or go old school, go to the website, www.theoriginaldoll.com. And a big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for keeping this podcast podcast up and running. We're able to keep this going. The more questions we get answered, the more guests we have, the more server space, the more website we need. So thank you so much. And for those who want to help, please do so. You can visit www.theoriginaldoll.com. We also have merch there, including official Britney Spears merch, uh, all the way back from 1999. So find more there. But I'm going to hop right into this episode. And what's interesting is, for context, can't Get You Out of My Head was released around the same time that Britney Spears' Slave for You was released. And I bring that up because these were songs released right at the time of September 11th, September 11th, 2001. And that's important to this story because as we talked with radio programmer Paxton Guy, that during this time, many stations were choosing to play everything from One Sweet Day, Mariah Carey, and Your Only Time. So the time was limited towards songs that were upbeat, different, new. So that's important in this story in context for the United States. But I'm going to go into those details in a bit. But let me go ahead and stop talking. We'll get right into this episode. And as with every episode of the original doll, any audio ripping recording is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So please do not remove any of this audio to put on any website, social media, anything. Thank you so much for your understanding, but we're going to hop into this. My name is James Rodriguez Horton, and this is The Original Doll. The Original Doll. What I want to do is talk to you a little bit about your career, how you got started in music, and then kind of go on the journey so the listeners can hear about you, um, because that's what the fun of this, the original doll is, to learn about the producers and songwriters, how they got started, because your your journey is a little bit different than other people who are like, I just started writing music and I was never involved in the industry separate of that. So t- Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh yeah, well, um, in, in the late 60s, I was in a band called Mud. and um, we were friends who lived in a place called Mitcham in Surrey in the UK. And uh, we grew, went to school together and and uh, decided to form a band. I sort of fell in love with guitar when I was about 10 and um, just always wanted to play it. And, and um, we were in this band called Mother and eventually we gigged at Circuit and um, we got seen by Mickey Mouse, Chin and Chapman, and all these people that were big in the 70s. And, and we were, um, and Chin and Chapman said, oh, we're going to write you a hit. And we said, oh, yeah, not really. really. <laughs> they do. That's what, wrote, yeah. Yeah. how many times do you hear that? I'm gonna write you a hit. You're like, sure. 
Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but they were right. They, they, they had Susie Quattro at the time and Sweet as well. So so we were on that same roster and um, we toured and we had about six, seven hits with them. Did a lot. Of, there's a program called Top of the Pops in the UK, which is gone now, but we were on that six, 65 times altogether in about five years. Yeah. Are you serious? I did that. I did not know. I remember Top of the Pops. I was like, this is amazing because we didn't have that here in the States. Any right, right. The closest thing I ever remember was like American Bandstand, but that was still older you know what i mean but top of the pops i was like i love it 65 times that's amazing that's got to be some record of some kind right well in in 75 we had we sold the most records of the year much wise because we had about six seven releases so growing up did your did your parents were they musically inclined was music a part of your childhood early on I think, think a li- little bit. My mum sung a bit and played bad piano and stuff like that. And um, I, ch- I think uh, uh, my grand bought me my first acoustic and, and I sort of took to it. I wanted, had lessons, but I didn't, didn't want to study the music. And I started listening to radio and listening to songs at the time and copying the riffs. And, and I sort of loved doing that. And I've sort of had pretty good ears ever since for doing that sort of thing and jamming. And then eventually that led to songwriting as well. So how... So- so how did that work? So you're in this successful band. How did it go from there to you going, okay, songwriting, you know, and going towards other artists? Because some people are like, no, I want to be either the behind the scenes person or the artist. Very few people, not yeah. saying that there aren't, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do that transition and still have success on both ends. Yeah, I mean, a very lucky position. I mean, when my uh, made it, I don't think sort of bands were that common as they are now. And we were lucky enough to get the deal and, seen and and within that period probably even before i i always did a bit of writing then when we got into more and more writing mud b-sides mud album tracks and, and eventually we got a couple of mud singles ray styles and me later on and uh, that led through to uh, being another, another band called darts i was in that band for two years which was a cool period um and me and one of the darts wanted to be hall and oats at the time in like that in the early 80s <laughs> He was going to write our own songs and be stars, but that didn't happen. He had twins at that time, so that all fell apart. And 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 um, I carried on songwriting, so I loved it. I had a really good little studio in my garage and early drum machines and stuff like that, right through to the 80s. Yeah. Hopping out for a quick second, because I wanted to go a little bit deeper into Rob's band, Mutt. Now, I just decided to do, you know, research on the UK charts for this group. Now, what's interesting is this is this is amazing. So they have had for the UK singles, three number one singles. Okay, something interesting about that is those three singles collectively spent 10 weeks at number one. Each of their number one songs spent more than one week at number one. This is this is something that's amazing. And I wanted to point out because oftentimes we see number one singles that, yay, it's number one, some of our faves. Yay, it went number one, and then it's not number one the next week. Every single one of Mud's number one singles spent more than one week there. The other thing is, ultimately, they would have 10, or they would have 11 top 10 hits, 15 top 40 hits, 16 top 75 hits. They would spend almost a year, okay, just a couple weeks shy of that, 41 weeks in the top 10 with their singles. Additionally, with their single as well, they would spend 125 weeks in the top 40 and 149 weeks in the top 75. I bring that up because that's over two years. 
Collectively, they spent over two years on the UK singles charts for their work. I wanted to point that out because for the chart geeks, these are fun things to learn. This was also done, this wasn't done over 50 years, this was done over such a short amount of time. So I wanted to point that out. But that was the group that Rob was in. And I wanted to kind of give you all some context, some some numbers, as I know many of you listeners are fans of numbers, just like I am. So we're going to hop back in. And um, I carried on songwriting, so I loved it. I had a really good little studio in my garage and early drum machines and stuff like that. Right through to the 80s. Yeah. Oh my goodness. See, and that the garage comes in for a, a, a big song that the listeners of every generation know. We're going to go, mm-hmm. we're going to jump into that in a second. But so yeah, it, it, to me, that's like, it's the, it's the funniest thing ever because some, somebody could be like, wait, so they did stuff in their garage. It's like, it's an act like, yes, they actually did it in the garage. So what was some of the, the first cuts that you had? that you know um, finally actually got cut by another artist yeah i mean uh, there was a band called liquid gold that had um some big singles disco singles and I, I got a couple of cuts with them not their big hits but later on and also i did an album with oliver cheatham who's like quite a big singer at the time he was from detroit an amazing voice did an album with him and that, that got me into the soul start side of stuff and and then after that period through the same label i met a paul Oakenfold and just I got got into the dancing from there really probably from about late 80s really to early 90s so then let me ask you this how did you look at doing kind of the disco thing different than like let's say you would rock you know the guitar being one of the first things possible like did you approach things differently well uh, being a guitar player um I I like in in the 70s I love bands like Isley Brothers Steely Dan was slightly soul, and I think the soul thing dragged me into the dancing. Um, and and I still had a bit of the rock background going on, and, and a bit of pop sense, you know, pop sensible sense to be going on, which I learned from Mike Chapman, who was like a great pop writer. And um, I sort of carried that through to dance music. And um, when I met Oakenfold, he said dance tracks are big now, but they're going to be big with vocals. So you know, I got into that side of it as well. And, it's not I was the first big of the pole. Well, it's not over yet. So how did you approach that differently when you're working with, let's say, vocalists on top of like, hey, you already yeah. know you have the beats, you already have this. How did you approach yeah. that differently to go, okay, now adding that extra instrument of that voice? Did you have to think differently in how you approach um, vocals on dance? Um, you do. I think you had to think a little bit more sparser. Like, like sometimes I'd write a full song first bridge chorus, first bridge chorus, middle eight, and all these parts. And, and people like Paul go, no, one verse, one, two verses and one chorus at the most, you know, because dance music only has one hook sometimes. So you have to just try and come up with ideas and feel what's right, really, with dance music. It is a different way of looking at things and, and keeping it sort of simple in a way. But I, th- I noticed lyrically dance gets better lyrically sort of through the years as well. It was very basic at first. So now there's more thought goes into it well what's great is a lot of the listeners have reached out to me and they've said you know can you talk about this song or that song and i am shocked with the amount of people that have reached out and said you know a dance song or a disco song like really gets them emotional you know you could go back to like i will survive all those things and people on the front you wouldn't think so but it it is it gets you you know yes definitely a message with i will survive and some of the big ones i mean it can cross as much as a normal a ballad, really, emotion-wise. But um, 
and, and people like like would will like with it it's not over yet people read different things into that that i never even thought of when we were writing the lyrics and that's like it's not over yet it was used at half time time in football matches and stuff like that when the tight side blues and yeah you hear mad mad things and well, and I mean, how great is that, though, that the, the fact that these songs where it's like you're thinking, eh, maybe it's this niche or this thing. And then it's like, wait, it's going to be at a football. You know what I mean? Like you think, OK, yeah, it's you never be- think of that. <laughs> no, never do. But so funny. Where it takes on. So Paul Oakenfold. So that was like, you know, 90s then at that point. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So how did like Fragma, how did all of that stuff come about then because we're coming upon the turn of the century where you know I I mean the original doll podcast is named after Britney Spears and and talking about how mm-hmm. music impacts culture how yeah. how was it making music at that turn of the century looking forward to what it could be because dance was coming back up at that point you know so how did you yeah. look at that differently um I think with dance and, and, and any sort of writing, you have to be very open-minded, however simple the track is. Like a lot, a lot of my muso friends used to say, what are you writing dance stuff? It's like two chords in it. But it's not, it's not the fact that the chords are simple, the track's great and it works with two chords. And, and you just learn to maybe try and different things and get the vocal to sound right on it, really. I'd spend a little bit of time with lots of ideas and just throwing stuff away and, and see what works. So that... So I have a bunch of uh, questions from different people. I let some people know that I was going to be interviewing you and just say like, hey, they're like, can you ask? So in a little bit, I'm going to be asking you about some songs that you probably are like, what are you talking about? But there are deep fans that are like, ask him about this. And a lot of people, because we're going to come upon like the Kylie, Kathy Dennis whole thing. Because I want to go back to this garage. Because when I first heard this story, I was like, one of the biggest songs of, of everyone's lifetime was not made in this polished Swedish studio somewhere. Where was it no, made? No. So talk to me a little bit about this. So you end up meeting yeah. Kathy Dennis, right? Well, right, right through the, from the eighties, I had, I had a back garage in, in, in my house and, and just put a little studio in it. And at first it was, I had a, a drum room on the other side. My bass player from Mud lived there at one point, and then, then he moved. And then I had the half to myself and um, started doing much more electronic stuff, drum machine. I, uh, the fact is I couldn't get a kit in the room anyway. So I, I got into drum machine, bought, bought one of that and sort of developed all that and got into drum, making dance tracks, pop tracks, all sorts of tracks, rock tracks, all through the ages. But I sort of had a right across experience from like recording all these different types of music. And then, then after my OP, um, the dance thing sort of became really dominant in my life from through the nineties. And, um, I was given, um, a, a, in, in, when I signed to universal publishing after it's not over yet, yeah, they, they gave me, um, tracks to, to say, I'll oh, put, put a vocal on that. And, and then, and sometimes they say, right for so-and-so. And so I got really big time into, um, recording vocals on dance tracks and also doing the tracks myself later, later as well. So when, when I met Kathy, we, I came up the track with her, the whole song, on, on our second day of, me, of meeting each other. We, um, I just had a drum loop, 125 BPM drum loop. She had that title in her head and she started, started to sing, I Can't Get You Out of My Head, and I, just over an acoustic guitar of a drum loop. And um, I, start, I started doing the la-la 
banana la la bits and um we just developed that whole song in sections over over a couple of hours and the whole thing was written and produced in seven hours the demo before kylie got it on it with with uh, kathy singing it yeah which was um it was just done in moved in sections we'd play all the parts in sing the parts in for the next section and just move on till the song was done and, and um it did feel very different well and it's become like can't get you out of my head has become one of those songs that it's like everyone is like oh my god the more that as as we're celebrating the 20th anniversary the years gone people are like they're still intrigued by it you know somebody had messaged me like is it true sophie ellis baxter was originally like thinking about cutting it was s club seven involved what happened why is this not a britney spears song like everyone asking everything so We've learned, the listeners and myself, that a lot of times you could make a track and think, oh, maybe we're pitching towards artist A, and you go, yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, ar- artist B somehow comes in, and you're like, is that going to, okay. Yeah. And it just marries it. So tell me a little bit about that. Who was the, when you were working in your garage with Kathy, was there artists that were, you were like, okay, let's kind of pitch some, or was it specifically you're put together, we need these artist songs? Uh, all it was was uh, Simon Fuller, uh, contacted um, Universal at the time and, and wa- wanted us to, to work together. I think I'd had Fragma and and it's not over and Groucher out the year before, um, and Fuller put, put us together and, and we wrote, wrote one song on the Saturday and it was okay. And, and then we did that on, on the next on the Sunday of this weekend and um, got that and, and um, it was just fun Fuller putting us together. And we weren't thinking of it for Kylie or anybody really in particular. He, he got the song. I think he heard it down the phone first and, and he said, I'll, I'll play it to S Club. And they decided it wasn't right for S Club. I think so, someone sent it to Sophie Ellis Baxter because I knew Sophie. I might have even sent it. I can't remember. But, but um, eventually I sent a cassette to Jamie Nelson at Parlophone because I sort of knew him. Just a cassette, not, not even a, a CD. <laughs> and um, he heard it. And he said, I want it for Kylie. He said straight away, like within an hour, I think, after getting it. And he said, and he said um, a week later, I'm sending Kylie down in a couple of months. She's touring at the moment. She's actually learn, learning the song. She loves it. And, w- and we went to see her sort of perform it before, you know, she w- we even did the, the record, you know. So it was very cool. Kylie has been one of those artists that's come up a few times. I uh, interviewed Autumn Rowe, who worked with Kylie on a song on Kiss Me More. And... Uh, Megan Cotoni, who worked on a lot of the disco tracks, Kylie's album, and both of them said separately, like, she's one of those artists that comes into the studio prepared. She's like, I know the song, I know the melody, here are some ideas. And I love that, you know what I mean? She's very conscientious, yeah. So as soon as that happens, then do you and Kathy go, okay, let's start creating some more songs as other options for her? Well, well, I think everybody liked that song so much, even before it was a hit. Um, Jamie came on and said, you've got to write together again because Kathy was off doing stuff and I was off doing stuff. And we came back and did, uh, yeah, Come Into My World. Oh, my God. Yeah, which, um, did, uh, and then when did, did that. when did Fragile come into play? That was the third then? The third song? Yeah, I, think I already had that song with someone else singing it. And um, I played it with Jamie and he loved it and said, try Kylie on it, put her on it. Made the album, which is brilliant. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing: you working on this, you're like you and Kathy working garage. You give this cassette tape. This song ends up becoming like 
for for many people, like her Kylie Minogue's iconic song in a career that she could have had many, you know, many songs that could have been that. But then also you were the first single, which is a huge, that's a huge deal to be. And the video was like amazing, you know, as well, which has has been copied several times ever since. Well, and that's something Mm. that's so funny because I talk about uh, a lot of people are like, you know, here we have Can't Get You Out of My Head, this amazing song. They're like, then the video comes out. And that video here in the States, MTV had this, the MTV Awards, and it was best choreography. Kylie Minogue, Can't Get You Out of My Head, beat Britney Spears' Slave for You for best choreography. Oh, I can't believe that. So imagine everyone's like, what is happening? This is huge. But I also think it really, I know it influenced a lot of the artists then and the music here in the States because can't get you out of my head. They're like, ooh, it's this kind of Euro, it's like unabashedly dance and their soul and it's yeah. seductive. And at the time we had a lot of the, the Max Martin, the Swedish like boom, boom, boom. This was like, tr- I don't want to say trancy, but I can't think of another word in my head right now. It's a club, club tune, sort of a club tune with a pop angle to it. Yeah. So how did it feel hearing Kylie doing it when you first heard her saying can't get you out of my head how did that feel that was amazing she, she was doing it live uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon and um, and well I was sort of blown away I was just told she's doing it tonight and she's learned it and it's like the first live performance you go wow you know not not my socks off unbelievable well and that's got to be so, that's got to be a great feeling knowing here you produced a song you know that you that you love you enjoyed making and the story is kind of awesome with this and then you see this artist performing it, you know, and it's mm-hmm. that's a whole separate level. Not many people can say that they have Kylie performing any song. You know what I mean? Yeah. How did that feel when you got to be then the audience watching her do it? Uh, a knockout was like, and I couldn't believe we couldn't believe how big it became afterwards. I mean, all day long it was on the radio for like months and months. You know, it's like. It smashed records everywhere. I that I do remember. It was like, you know, it it didn't just like it wasn't like oh, it had a hundred more spins. This was like thousands more spins and everything. I was like, what is happening? This is for me. It was great because it introduced me to the European market of music because Kylie, you know, was was dormant here. There were still people that knew who she was, but this really put her. She was played on all different radio stations, which is hard to do in general. Now I want to hop out because I like going through archives, receipts, databases, and more. And on TikTok at the James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, you can actually see more of that. I break down many of the artists and going back through the facts and receipts. Now in January 26, 2002, Billboard had an article by Fred Bronson. And in there, and I'm going to read it verbatim because I think it's important. It says, the second highest new entry in the Hot 100 is by female artist who's been away much longer than Brandy, because he referenced Brandy uh, being back on the charts. Aussie pop queen Kylie Minogue has already experienced international success with Can't Get You Out of My Head, because remember I said that it was released in the fall in almost every country except for the U.S. Now, it finally is released in the U.S. on Capitol Records. The single opens at number 64 and marks Minogue's first chart appearance since It's No Secret peaked at number 37 in 1989. 
Can't Get You Out of My Head is only the fourth Minogue single to chart on the Hot 100. She made her U.S. debut in July 1988 with I Should Be So Lucky. The follow-up remains her most successful, successful American hit to date. Her remake of The Locomotion was a number three hit in 1988. Despite her absence from the U.S. charts, Minogue has not been inactive, as her U.K. chart history can attest. Can't Get You Out of My Head was her sixth number one hit in Britain and her 21st top 10 hit. Okay. Then it talks about her previous album, Light Years, you know, was never released in the U.S., but Fever is going to be. I wanted to point this article out because Minogue did debut at number 64 on the Hot 100, and the only physical version you could buy was the remixes on a 12-inch single. So it didn't have the CD single or, you know what I mean, the CD maxi single, things like that. This was specifically on the 12-inch vinyl. Now, on there, in that same article, in the same magazine for Billboard, on the Hot Dance Music, Kylie Minogue was number one with the maxi single sales for the Hot Dance Breakouts. Can't Get You Out of My Head, debuting at number one. And the thing to remember is, it was already a single everywhere else, pretty much, and then it came to the United States. And I wanted to point this out because this was at a time when songs weren't given a universal release on this specific date. Oftentimes, you would have, in the U.S., you could get a new, you know, song or single album released on a Tuesday. In the U.K., it might have been Monday, you know, in different places, Fridays. It was all different. It's very different from what many of the listeners know now, where almost everywhere an album comes out on that specific day. The other thing I wanted to talk about is for... RIAA, the recording industry who certifies, you know, if your single or album is gold or platinum, well, Can't Get You Out of My Head was in fact certified gold in the U.S. with sales over 500,000 copies, okay? But it specifically shows the release date was February 26th, 2002. So, and it talks about that being the digital type. Now, the album, which I'm going to be talking about in the next episode, is for Fever, it shows that it was released on February 26, 2002, and it would go ahead and be given the rating of platinum sales. Okay, so it's certified platinum with sales over a million copies in the U.S. Now, this, you know, is her best-selling album within the U.S. per RIAA. Now, she's only had four items, four different liners on the RIAA certification. Can't Get You Out of My Head is a gold single. Uh, Fever is a platinum single. Locomotion, gold single. The album, Kylie, gold. Okay, so I wanted to point that out so you all know where we stand in reference to that. But I'm going to go ahead and stop talking and let you know I have more with Rob Davis. We're going to talk about Come Into My World and answer many of your listener questions. So make sure you subscribe. It should be out within the next 24 hours. And once again, follow me on Instagram, thought.original.doll, on Twitter, at the James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, and on TikTok, at the James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. And easy way to go to the website, www.theoriginaldoll.com. And I will see you all on the flip side. The original doll. Yeah, yeah.